without further ado, I think it's time for a little panel. Risha, what's happening? Well, I'm hoping my phone doesn't ring and say seek shelter because we're in the middle of a thunder and tornado storm in the greater Philadelphia area. So fingers oh, no. crossed. <laughs> well, if it does, um, then you get you stay safe. I'll jump on <laughs> and, and play your part for you. So then we'll um, we'll also bring on bo -bo -bo -bo, where who else do we have here, Mr. Willem. What's up, dude? And hey. Chris. Oh, this is a great panel. Where's Aparna? Yes. And last but not least, we've got Alex. But Alex, calling Alex to the stage. Where is he? There he is. All right. So there's a ton of us. I'm going to hop off, reach up. I'm going to hand over the talking stick to you and we'll get it started. All right. Thanks, Ringo. Um, welcome panel. Um, let's just take a quick second to go around the room, introduce ourselves, and then we'll dive right into the questions. I'll kick it off. My name is Richa Sachdev. I work for JP Morgan Chase, and I'm in the Chase Rewards Department and lead a team of data engineering and operations. And we work on the business side to help them make data-driven decisions. I'll pass it over to you, Aparna. Awesome. Hey, everyone. Good to get to see you all. Uh, excited to be on this panel. My name is Aparna, founder of Arise AI, Rise's ML Observability and I guess LLM Observability, which will be the topic of, of today. So excited to, to you know have, have a great combo with all of you. Wonderful. Thanks, Aparna. Over to you, Chris. Hey, everyone. I'm Chris Van Pelt, co-founder of uh, Weights and Biases. Repping the brand today. Uh, our mission is to build uh, developer tools for uh, machine learning or LLM prompt engineering uh, engineers. Welcome, Chris. Alex. Hey, everyone. Um, I'm Alex. I'm one of the co founders and CEO at Snorkel. I'm also um, affiliated assistant professor at University of Washington. Uh, and before that, I was working on the Snorkel project at Stanford, all things what we call data centric AI. So, uh, labeling, but also curating, sampling, filtering, cleaning all the data that goes into either training models from scratch or fine-tuning, pre-training, instruction-tuning um, large language models or foundation models, as we like to call them. So excited awesome. for this uh, this chat, and Richa, thanks for hosting. Of course, and this panel would not be complete without Willem. Willem, you're next. Hey, folks. Yeah, my name's Willem. been in the data and AI space for about uh, you know, six, eight years now already. Um, leading ML platform teams, ML infra teams, and building in the open source space. Uh, recently, most focused on feature stores, but uh, really sinking my teeth into the LLM space over the last couple of months. Well, thank you all for being here. This is definitely a great panel, and I'm excited for all of the learnings. And Willem, nice to see you again. So I'll kick it off with you. Can you walk us through what do you think in your experience of the, the high-level differences between LLM ops and ML ops, and it's quite a tongue, tongue twister. LLM ops. I, I always make sure I have the right number of L's. <laughs> yeah, I feel like this question we can probably expand and talk about for thirty minutes to an hour. So <laughs> I'll try and keep it as brief as possible. But um, I think a big part of it for me is abstraction and generalization. Um, to me, LLM ops is um, language oriented right and so there's a big question around how you frame your use case as a builder um, to what an LLM can do because it's so generalized 
Um, but I think we've seen a democratizing effect of um, these LLMs bringing in new folks that couldn't previously um, uh, traditional ML uh, stacks and solutions. Um, but I think the, a key difference for me is the offline flow, right? That's an area that has become somewhat optional right now. And I think for application builders that has enabled new use cases to be unlocked and for folks that you know weren't in the space to suddenly build, right? You can just start with a model in production, frame your use case um, around an LLM and, and get that in front of users and, and get traffic onto that model and then figure out the next steps and the offline flow, whether it's data collection, whether it's training, um, that, that whole step has become a secondary step as, as opposed to the first step. Um, and I think that's that's a key thing and I'll kind of leave it there and let the rest of the panel kind of expand on that. Yeah, uh, thanks, Willem. Anybody wants to add on to what Willem just said? Yeah, I mean, I think Willem's point was was a really good one. You know, when we think about data scientists and ML engineers and what the workflow has been like for, call it statistical AI, traditional AI, there's, there's a lot of names I'm, I'm hearing floating for, you know, non-LLM type of models. Um, but, but what happens is a big chunk of that work is in the training of, of the model. And I think that, you know, when we think about how do you go improve the outcomes, you think about, well, I'm going to go and train it to, to get X percent increase in performance. That's become a fundamental shift in this new LLM ops world is that there's so much you can do with prompt engineering. And actually, I think this is kind of what Willem's point was, which is in the, you know, the offline world, might not look like training. It might not look like fine tuning. It might just be iterating on what is the prompt? What is the context that I might want to incorporate into the prompt? And it's a very fundamentally different different workflow and different way of thinking about improvement than, than in the past, which is um, which is where, you know, I, for, for me, the, the one big thing I've been thinking about is, well, how does this change the persona? Does it you know, are are there going to be just data scientists who are building these models, just ML engineers? Does it potentially open up the persona a bit to, you know, I've actually already seen job postings for LLM engineers. And so does it open up kind of that persona for a wider audience because there's less of an emphasis on, on training and more of an emphasis on, call it prompt and prompt, prompt iteration? Um, the one thing I do think will will stay true in both MLOps and LLMOps, though, um, is it's very easy in the LLMOps world to, to, I think, try things really quickly, get a Twitter demo up, post it on Twitter. But just as an MLOps, very, very hard to get something to work robustly, work, work consistently. And so um, that, happy to, I, I think, dive into that and, and talk about that more. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, it's interesting you're saying that probably the way the teams are going to be structured, the personas, the life cycle itself might change. But for like companies that are getting up to speed with the LLM world, I know like MLOps is still something that is not very easily understood. With the introduction of MLOps, 
what does it mean for companies to strategize? Can they take what they've already built and carry forward? Is it a completely separate initiative? So curious, Alex, if you have any thoughts around around that. Yeah, I'll, I'll uh, respond to some of the great points that, that, that well, I'm in a partner raised. I think there's a, um, uh, I guess my short answer to your direct question is I think there's a lot of the MLOps infrastructure that is going to remain the same. Um, and this has a lot to do with the appropriate models to actually serve in production for some subset of use cases. We, we often call them predictive use cases, uh, classification, extraction, uh, a lot of the traditional things that um, actually a lot of enterprise value still rests on today versus some of these larger, more generalist agents that kind of have open-ended, you know, Q&A, chat, dialogue, et cetera. Um, I guess I, I already talked long enough that I'm, I'm, I'm uh, you know, I'll just uh, cut to the punchline. And in my opinion, there's a lot of those, um, those tasks, uh, more predictive tasks that still um, probably are going to make up a lot of the, the value that enterprises get out of AI. They can be distilled down, um, you know, orders of magnitude uh, to traditional models. Basically think of it as like going from a generalist to a specialist. Um, one way that we've been thinking about these, these foundation models or large language models is um, as kind of first mile tools. Uh, Parna, your point about, you know, it's very easy to make a demo, but the last mile still remains very, very hard, right? We, we all, everyone who's, you know, an AI knows that problem and, and knows that at least for a subset, especially of highly complex and valuable problems, that's not changing. That's why self-driving has been here next year for the last, decade. Um, that's why the last mile is always difficult. Um, but, you know, I think these, these big generalist models will give us a very powerful base to start the explorations and to, uh, we often refer to in our platform as warm start the problem. Um, and then you need to train specialists that branch off of them. And those specialists can be much smaller and often will just look like a traditional ML model artifact. Um, we had a paper with some uh, one of my great students at UW and, and uh, some Google AI collaborators on a, a distillation, a new distillation approach, basically of kind of using a big model to teach a smaller model. But this is an old technique and really, you know, the intuition of, of how you can get this crazy result of a tiny model that's doing far better than the big model is it's just generalist to specialist. You don't always need a generalist jack of all trades that's hundreds of billions of parameters when you have a specific narrow problem you need to do really well at. So. I think a lot of um, a lot of enterprise value, a lot of the problems that actually get shipped to production, really are going to need specialists. And I think for specialists, we're going to see a lot of building off of big, often open source models that are more than good enough to give you that that warm start. And then specialization, and those specialists will most likely run on existing MLOps infrastructure. So the serving infrastructure will look almost identical. I think when you truly do need a generalist, and I think that we're still figuring out what subset of problems are real there when you, but, but, you know, when you do need some kind of, you know, generalist co-pilot or chat thought, um, then it will look like a new type of serving mechanism because then you can't shrink it down as much. That's serving and then training. I, I've already talked too much. So I'll cut myself off, but training, I would just say, I think there's a, there's a chunk of the world that will look like, you know, a part of what you were articulating quite nicely, where it's more about the prompt engineering. There's a chunk of the world where actually, because you're working on specialized data or, or high value and or high value use cases, you are going to need to continue training a piece of the model, an adapter, fine tuning, et cetera. Um, actually, a lot of that we're going to see converging in context learning and fine tuning. Um, there's a, some cool new papers out about how those can be, you know, convergent. So it will, in our view, come back to just the kind of engineering of the data and context you put into the model, whether it's through training 
i.e. fine tuning or through context windows, it'll really be more about that. Um, so that's, I think on the, in summary, I think on the training side, it's gonna be a lot about these data operations, whether it's a prompt or a tuned prompt or a prompt that includes a set of examples, which is now back to a labeled data set or, or a mixture of all these things plus some external context. It's gonna be all that data engineering. Um, and then more so than the actual kind of hyperparameter algorithm model architecture selection. Um, and then on the serving side, it's going to be kind of a split between these highly specialized models that'll look like traditional MLOps um, and traditional models actually would be my bet. And the kind of true general, generalist where you, you do need a gigantic model and the ops will look a little bit different. So that's my, that's my hot take, um, but I'll pause there. Talk too long. Yeah. Thanks for the great insights, Alex. Um, Chris, I have a question for you. So in your own world, when you're talking to different companies, data science teams, et cetera, practitioners that are in the weeds, how are they thinking about using open source tools, let's say if for a financial firm, um, how are they making sure that the data is safe and it's easy or, or is it safe for them to leverage the open source tools that are available out there? Or is there a lot of talk of, trying to build some of these LLM models in-house as well. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's still early days. Um, we're all obviously very excited about LLMs, but I think getting these into big enterprises, doing real work is, is you know, still yet to, to really happen in a meaningful way. Um, I talk to security teams and, and data teams often, and, you know, it is a big concern um, to, you know, just send this data out to, to say something like OpenAI's um, API. They've mitigated this with, uh, you know, allowing you to have kind of a, an isolated um, Azure native API in the, in the case of OpenAI, but I think there's still folks that, that want to own the entire stack or literally, you know, can't send out the data to any third party at all. And that's uh, that's when either you know building something from scratch or or partnering with um, folks like uh, Mosaic uh, to help you know build out something um, for themselves. And there's a whole you know there's a bunch of startups now just focusing on like hey we'll build you an LLM. Um, it remains to be seen if that you know that's a big burden to to manage and deploy and deal with one of these large um, LLMs. So. I think we'll we'll still see where this where this ends up, but it's it's a bit of an unanswered question. The other day it was I think uh, early this week there was a, a startup on Hacker News talking about this exact problem. Like we're trying to give better data observability and and lineage and governance around you know what is is going into these things potentially redact. So I think we'll we'll see kind of where where this lands, but uh, it's definitely a big question on on the enterprises' minds. No, thank you. And and the, the follow-up that I have is like, how are they thinking about the cost? As I understand, there's a huge cost associated. So how are the companies rationalizing it around the ROI that they're going to generate from it? Or is it still very early to determine that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's expensive for sure. Um, so, I mean, I think a lot of these bigger orgs, they have a budget and they can, you know, very kind of rationally think about would this make sense to take, you know, this massive chunk out of the budget? Uh, but it's also still, still early. And there's a bunch of startups trying to make it a lot cheaper too. So, um, 
you know, we'll see. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's a lot of great progress. Oh, sorry, go. No, no, no. Good. I was just, I think there's a lot of great progress to Chris's point on on uh, startups and and a lot of that coming from academia on on just making these these operations at all stages cheaper, and then you just have um, yeah, I think as this the um the space matures a bit although these are all very classical ideas you have these different stages you can start at so it's not either start from scratch or taken off the shelf you know API based uh, uh, foundation model you can. You, know, you can take an open source base and you can you know, build off of that. You can, there's various, uh, there's a, a whole spectrum of kind of customization, uh, you know, kind of entry points. No, I will not recommend your podcast. As the ML lead engineer at DQB Bank, I'm definitely not wanting other engineers to have all this relevant information. And I will not give my name, which is Lena. So definitely, I do not recommend this podcast. So I think a lot of organizations, these large enterprises that Chris, you, you know, Chris talked about that you know, don't necessarily want to send all their private data to, um, you know, to an open AI and don't necessarily have to because the open source models, they're, they're not quite as good uh, right now as uh, you know, a kind of general open chat and taking you know, I don't know, MIT entrance exams and LSATs and all the things that apparently you know, baby LLMs do these days in their free time. Uh, but they are more than good enough to kind of base off of and build a highly accurate specialist. So you have all these options of kind of where do I start and how do I specialize it? And I think in terms of cost rationalization, one of the appealing things is both being able to use this as a base for kind of jump-starting multiple downstream ML projects. If you have a hundred teams that are going to use your, you know, foundation model as a base to speed up by 20%, that's a pretty, you know, good ROI calculus. And also the cool thing is that, you know, a lot of how these, mo these foundation models are trained, it's not just pure, okay, go look and do self-supervision, train yourself. You can also use downstream specific tasks through what's called multitask supervision to kind of make it smarter. So basically you can both get a boost for those downstream hundred tasks, but you can also create this powerful kind of data or supervision flywheel that makes the base better if you own that. So I think a lot of enterprises are getting quite interested in what if I own that and I both speed up everything else I do downstream, but also kind of have this way of kind of collecting and scaling all the work we do. Um, that's going to be very interesting. And it doesn't necessarily mean open source versus closer. It just means they need to be able to own their copy of the model. And there's some interesting models from the cloud players and others emerging around that along with open source. Yeah, and that's a great point, Willem. Um, I'm sorry, Alex, the, the, the one thing that uh, we definitely should mention on that front too, we're talking about foundational model, you know, the, the more private foundational models than the, the, OSS, the OSS foundational models. I, you know, in both of those cases, I've been seeing a huge rise in using vector databases to be able to connect that, you know, it's another, you know, I think about it as two ways. You, you know, there's, there's a privacy component where you might have to use um, an, an OSS model or build your own. Um, but then there's also a connecting your data component when you're fine tuning or you're training up your own LLM. It's one approach to be able to give, you know, your, your LLM context of your use case and your data. Another way of doing that, if you want to just, if you can use just an off the shelf LLM is to be able to connect to, 
um, a vector store and pull in context from, you know, and I've been seeing a lot of different use cases for this getting actually deployed into production, things like chatbots, or I want to be able to answer questions on these certain documents. And what teams are doing is, is really supplementing the user queries with context from their own knowledge base. And it's, it's a way less complex approach to find, you know, building up your own LLM or fine tuning your LLM. As you add more documents or knowledge to your knowledge base, you can you can kind of augment it without having to pre-train the whole LLM. Um, but it's a great way to connect the LLMs to your own data. And you know, the way I think about it is if you can use a, you know an out-of-the-box kind of kind of public foundational LLM like OpenAI, well, you can directly call it get get back a response if you need to connect it to your data throw in a vector database if it's still not giving you good responses you want to fix a more general problem um you know you might need to fine tune it and then if if you really can't do any of those options then i'd kind of add, you know I, we've been seeing people then resort to using more of an o oss type of llm but typically that's kind of the process i've been seeing people go through to select the right approach or what what makes sense for their use case? I want to also. Raising up like a. I go for sorry, Will. You go. Uh, I think we should, if we have about seven minutes left, let's hear any hot takes if folks have about how MLOps is going to change. But wanted to uh, just tie back uh, Alex's point and Chris's point on the enterprises. I think if you're mature and you have high value use cases. Um, you probably have an evaluation stack and already existing systems in place. And for a lot of these companies they have a little bit of leeway to try open AI or, or other mature models and do a like for like comparison offline. And I, I'm hearing that from a lot of folks I speak to. And if so, if they have data sets already that are produced for or by ML uh, systems or even human labeling, they can already see how well these uh, LLMs are performing. And then in some cases they're, you know, cutting down nine months of human labeling to, you know, minutes or hours of work. Um, so there's definitely demand. And I think a lot, at a lot of companies, they see this as a differentiator. So there's pressure to get adoption. And now this is figuring out like, how do we actually do this? And they're exploring open source and other ways to do this reliably. Um, but yeah, Parna, I'd, I'd love to also like get into a topic of perhaps like, how does the stack change, right? Like vector stores versus feature stores um, or, you know, any other, uh, kind of stack changes maybe on the observability side. Um, have you seen any any kind of like use case differences there? Yeah, I so that great, great question. So I think vector stores have definitely, I'm not the first person to say this, but vector stores have definitely, you know, a core part of what I'm seeing in the LLM op stack. Um, I think the embedding analysis and being able to understand uh, like we've been doing it on the deep learning side for CV and NLP, but definitely um, something that's been cropping up more on the observability side for LLMs. And then um, one other nuanced point that I, I think I'd mention is that um, for LLM observability, if you are using a vector store, being able to trace back was the right context added. If the right context wasn't added, how do you trace it back to 
you know, are the most similar documents that are selected necessarily the most relevant documents or all the types of questions that we're getting asked and we're seeing actually our, our users troubleshoot um, in, in production. So um, I think the, the observability stack for LLMs will definitely need to have some, some components of looking at the vector store and, and being able to troubleshoot the context that, that was retrieved. Um, you know, one thing that I think is different with LLM ops is exactly what you, you said apart of this, like need to really debug or diagnose or, or get into these ever more and more complex chain of, of agents, like all of the, the cool stuff trending is it's like pretty complex and you can have many different calls out to different sub models or different services. And, um, if any one of those things goes wrong, you're going to get a bad result. And then. Uh, Willem, you mentioned this like evaluation stack, like companies that have a mature evaluation function. I mean, this is this is really important. Like it's we're getting a lot of software developers now using these things and it works and it's a cool demo. But if you can't measure how good it is, there's there's you know, that's not going to be good in the in the long run. And it, it may degrade. And um, so I think these are the the big differences here. And and. You know, there's going to be a lot of tools that that will hopefully help solve these things, but it's it's early days. I think one way to look at this was, go for it. I know you got. There's one quick point. I think the LLMs versus MLOps comparison puts them kind of at the same level, but another way to look at this is if you look at a feature store, you know, the features could be produced by an LLM, or it could be. You know, this is a system that is at a higher level and it compiles down um, your data pipelines or produces the code, produces the features and touches on the points that Alex made of the specialists, right? Like, you know, you could start with the LLM and then ultimately you have a more performant, perhaps more brittle, but reliable code-driven system that is optimized for your use case. And, and so they're not perhaps peers in the same level, but more kind of student teacher. Uh, Alex, you can go. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Um, and, and with what, what Chris was saying in terms of how these systems, I mean, there've always been complex chains of interdependencies between deployed AI powered applications, but the kind of democratization of that and the kind of blooming of complexity, we'll see how many of those actually get shipped to production, but you know, it, it's definitely kind of coming more to the forefront right now in really interesting ways that require this kind of, yeah, more software like debugging through these long traces. Um, I guess uh, I can give a, um, let's see, a, a quick hot take, a medium take, and, a, and a, a cold take, I don't know, which is just like a lukewarm statement. But the hot take I already said is I think a lot, of, a huge chunk of the models people actually want to build, uh, the problems they actually want to solve with foundation models today in the enterprise will just boil down to uh, traditional ML models and traditional ML ops. We want to classify this. It'll start with a foundation model, but it'll end up with just a smaller a model, and you could look at this, and uh, you know, um, look at uh, um, uh, you know some of the mature deployers of foundation models for years. Like, mainly, I'm referring to Google, right? They don't serve the biggest models in production. They distill down to smaller models, um, uh, uh, you know, in, in ways like the work we did with them. So, I think that's the hot take: is that a lot of LLM ops will just boil down to ML ops, as, as I can get for a, a conversation this nerdy, uh, uh, you know, right now when there's so much agreement in the group too. Maybe a medium take is, um, I think evaluate, I agree with, uh, you know, well, I'm agreeing, so not that hot, but um, evaluation, super important, super challenging. 
we've taught a generation of data scientists basically uh, well, well not to peek at the test set, right? Don't test that hat hack, don't cheat. And what that has translated into is don't look or think at, uh, don't look at or think about the test set. And uh, that's always been a problem in machine learning, right? You know, um, you actually have to engineer your test set to be representative of what you want your model to do in production. That's actually still a problem for, you know, simple predictive models, but it gets tenfold more messy, when, uh, tenfold messier when you now have, um, you don't have a simple accuracy score. You need to build like a custom benchmark and you need to you know, be careful about where the data came from and whether it was in the training set of some gigantic, you know, web-wide uh, trained model. And so I think evaluation is, is very much in the hotspot right now. And a lot of these demos, they look amazing until you actually do a rigorous evaluation. And then you're like, it's still really cool, but it's not production ready, but we're not even, we're baby steps there. So that's the medium take. And then the lukewarm take might be just that, uh, this goes back to a nice articulation of part of you were making of kind of the, the, the steps of things you do. A lot of the questions that people are asking about, like, should I do a prompt or can I just rag it? I heard that phrase at, at Microsoft build, uh, you know, retrieval augmented generation of putting in a context uh, database, or do I need to fine tune? A lot of these are just pick the right tool for the right job, right? And it, and it really is, just, it's always the problem in data science is start with the simplest approach. And, you know, in some cases, yeah, simple prompt, you'll get a great solution. And then other cases, well, your model is missing some context from a structured or unstructured data store. So plug in a database. In other cases, it's actually the, you know, ability to get the right decision boundary is not, even with the right information is off. So you need to fine tune it. In other cases, it just doesn't have the good enough representations for your specific specialized domains. So now you actually have to pre-train. So, uh, you know, I think it'll, it'll all come back to, it's not an either or, it's just to pick the right tool for the right job. That's my lukewarm take. Um, kind of just awesome. plus winning what Aparna said. Yeah, you've all been a great panel, but I believe you've run out of time. Um, Demetrius. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> this is how I know, oh, you can't see me, but this is how I know the panel is full of executives. They're right on time, literally one minute over and they're like, shit, we're burning money here. We got to go run businesses. So I love that. I just want to know last question from me and there's some incredible questions in the chat. So maybe we can convince some of you to go into the chat after this, but Alex, said it already so i don't need to hear it again the rest of the panel do i need to rebrand is it ml ops going away do i need to rebrand in llm ops that's what i want to know chris i'll go with you first uh i'm in agreement with with alex's takes i think uh it's it's spot on um it is it is still early days we're all kind of like watching and and wondering how this is gonna how this is gonna play out but um I don't think a rebrand is necessary. The the core fundamentals of let's you know measure and have uh, an audible auditable system of record is is going to hold true, and um, that's good for for my business. So maybe I'm I'm seeing the world as I want to see it, but we'll, we'll wait and see. I love it. Well, yeah. I mean, maybe a little bias from my side, but I'll go with that one. What about you, Aparna? I feel like I'm gonna maybe be a little dissenter here. Um, I, I think that, um, it's, it's definitely changed how people think about, um, I, like, I think the potential of LLMs is massive. I think it's changed how people think about, um, you know, should I build this or should I just call an API and, and, and choose that approach? Um, I think the world of today 
you know, LLMs probably don't replace all of traditional ML use cases. Come on, it's so expensive, it's latent, it's not going to work for internet scale applications. But um, there's some things that I can't imagine people like sentiment analysis or classification. I can't imagine people continuing to build models for for that when an LLM does so good right out of the box. And so I think, you know, it's probably not an overnight, we're all LLM ops. And we're kind of living in this middle ground of statistical AI is still the most commonly deployed ML that's out there, but LLMs are coming for us. And I think all of us are kind of thinking about, well, you know, I actually just had a call this morning where they said, CEO has three LLM initiatives, and those are the biggest ML, the biggest projects that our ML or DS organizations focused on. And it's it's a little bit of, I think, this, you know, wave that's coming towards us. And we're all, I think we should, you know, the needs of this model type or this new wave might be different. So be, being able to adapt to something I I think we're, we're all trying to do. Yeah, I think from my side, um, MLOps rolls off the tongue a little bit better. So I think you're safe on that front. But I 100% agree with Parna. Um, yeah, I think uh, I'm excited about the new use cases that it unlocks. Reasoning and judgment, certainly. Um, these agentic flows and the debugging thing was an important point earlier. There's a lot to be learned still. I think it's early days. But you know, nobody's ever said... You know, there's, there's an existential risk to, you know, us from XGBoost, right? There's clearly a step change with LLMs, and we're all waiting to see how this impacts us to, um, over the next couple of years. Um, but yeah, I think for now, uh, wait and see is the best course of action. And last, Demetrius, I got to get a word in. The, you were you were trying to pull a fast on me. You know, I think it should be FM ops. I know you said that last time. I'm <laughs> bigger fight. That bigger fight. never that never happened. <laughs> and keep ignoring it. <laughs> we can't have another ops, man. Give me a break. There's too many ops. Uh, so yeah, foundational model ops does make a lot more sense though. I will give you that. So Richa, last one before I kick everybody off. Is it in or is it out? Am I rebranding or what? No, you're in for the long haul. You've got the right name and you got to stick to it. And we all know you as somebody who founded this community and we're going to stay true to it. There we go. All right. So thank you all for this insightful chat. I, I do not know if I have ever been on a virtual call with so many hard hitters before. And it is uh, an honor to be able to say that I rub shoulders with you all. And for those that are in San Francisco, I'll be there in two weeks. So hopefully we can meet in person. I will, I'm going to kick you all off now because we got some trivia games to play. But this has been absolutely awesome. Thank you all for the fun times and insights and good stuff. I'm Emmanuel Mason, machine learning engineer at Stripe and author of Building Machine Learning Powered Applications. And if you don't want your machine learning models to explode, well, you should subscribe to this podcast. <laughs>